version of this is have you heard of shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves in three generations oh yeah um, yeah yeah i know yeah. i know that concept right, right? so you it's know? like the first generation the founding entrepreneur patriarch <laughs> matriarch whoever but they build the business and then maybe their kids want to take on the business and they learn the trade it's never as good as the founder, yeah, but they phone it in, you know, yeah, yeah. they're not really going for and it. And then by the next generation though, you've got the trust fund babies studying Marxists. They want to be you, poets. You got, you got Hunter Biden taking <laughs> <Yeah>. over. <laughs> Welcome to the furrowed brow with Jeffrey Kipler. Let's just get into it then, Michael. Cheers. Let's do it. Okay. Uh, ready to go. Excellent. A little, a little introduction to get us started. Um, Michael Gibson started working uh, with Peter Thiel the first day of the Thiel uh, Fellowship started. He's the founder of the 1517 Fund, which is a VC, two-person VC team that invests in businesses started by young adults that skipped going to college. He's the author of Paper Built on Fire, a book that chronicles all of these adventures. Uh, he and I have an extensive overlap in our interests, I found out, since reading that book. And uh, a lot of the things that we touched on here at the Furrow Brow, and I'm extremely excited to have him on. So thanks for joining us, Michael. Well, thanks for having me on. Yeah. It's fun, uh, fun to be here, and I look forward to the conversation, yeah. So just to start things off, Elon Musk is, is famous for having said, my conversations with Gates were have been underwhelming, to be honest. Mm. You... Uh, you seem to have an interaction with Bill where he, he handled some criticism really well. Um, what was your uh, interactions with Bill Gates like back in that meeting? Yeah, so I was up in Seattle in your neighborhood for a fundraising event um, back in, I guess this was 2013. Um, and it was for the Institute for Advanced Study at Princeton. This is mm -hmm. a legendary um think, I don't know what to call it, like a think tank or, you know, foundation that's devoted to theoretical physics, math, like the highest echelon of nerddom you could, you could imagine. Um, you know, his first hire was, was Albert Einstein. Um, but they, you know, they raised money from different sources. And I had been invited to this dinner at, at Charles Simonyi's house. He's, he was part of the original Microsoft team with Gates or, or one of the early employees. And he's the architect behind Word and Excel. So, you know, he's pretty famous too, but I, I did not know Bill Gates was gonna be at this dinner. So I, I showed up and uh, the woman ha uh, running the entry into the into the house, there was a table with name, name tags. And my name's Gibson, G-I, and I'm looking down at the name tags and right above mine is Gates, Bill Gates, you know, G-A. So I was like, all right, this is going to be fun. That's one way to organize the tables. So that's yeah. good. So then we get to business, you know, sit down. And it wasn't until later where I had a chance to to interact with him. Um, I, I knew I had to talk to him because he's Bill Gates. And because I, you know, didn't really know what else to talk about, I, I raised this question that, that Peter Thiel, my boss, had been thinking about, which is like, you know, how do, how do we measure progress? Um, is the rate of progress slowing down despite all the press release, every press release from every startup or, you know, every, what, what every book seems to be saying is that we're living in exponential growth and, you know, we're having trouble 
adjusting ourselves to the future because it's just coming so fast. And, and what Peter had been arguing at the time is that, no, in fact, it's only within this narrow cone of progress in computers and communication technology where we've really seen growth. But outside of that, things have been stagnant. So I decided, okay, I'm going to ask Bill Gates about this. And, and when I asked him the question, you know, he just, he just flipped and, um, you know, he went from being like this kind uncle to, uh, you know, the badass entrepreneur who wanted to like show me who was, who was right and who was on top. So he just starts off, he just starts saying, oh, you guys are full of shit, full of shit. I was like, oh my God, this is amazing. So I, I ended up getting into like a you know good 15 minute debate with Bill Gates on how we measure progress. And, and we went through different industries. And, and I think, you know, from his point of view, to steel man it a little bit, in his mind, you know, gr great progress had been made because uh, if you looked at the way the developing world was catching up with the developed world uh, in terms of healthcare, education, maybe even just income, uh, great strides had been made in the last 40 years. Right, and, and that's a, a distribution. Of, that's a yeah. distribution thing, though, not so much like a breakthrough thing. Yeah, I mean, exactly. So breakthrough it's more, distribution, but... Right, it's more about spreading the best practices we have in health and sanitation, not inventing or discovering a cure for some major disease. Um, so yeah, it, it was funny going back and forth on that. And, and it, you know, from where he's coming from, that's been the focus of his philanthropic work is really, you know, helping the worst off in troubled places. So, you know, naturally, maybe that's the first thing that came to his mind. So that's funny, that quote from, I didn't realize Musk said that, but um, there is some something to the Gates story where, you know, he got beat up when Microsoft was accused of being a monopoly going through that whole. Uh, I mean, it was a monopoly, but yeah. he kind of earned it. Right. <laughs> yeah. Right. Like, I mean, one of the, the it's funny you mentioned monopoly and one of the things that i love about teal in his commentary on businesses in zero to one mm. is that the goal of every business is to become a monopoly you know, you know the wealth is only built through having moats and gates and yeah right um you know monopolistic practices yes i think people misread peter as saying monopolies are good no matter what. And I think what, what he's saying is that, you know, these organic naturally forming market-based monopolies are, you know, that's the, the goal of every great entrepreneur, but it's also the, the, the motivation that keeps the company going is they need to make those profits. Um, whereas he, what, what he wasn't saying was we need state enforced monopolies. Right. <laughs> we need to protect uh, people with laws or regulations in order to, you know, prevent barrier, you know, erect all these barriers to entry to prevent competition. That, that's well, not look, what Peter was saying. If you have, yeah, if you have a state enforced monopoly, it's really, it's utilizing the state's monopoly of violence in order to create right. a monopoly of business practices. And as far as I'm aware, hmm. Bill Gates did not use violence to make Microsoft Windows the most yeah, dominant yeah. operating system in the world. Yeah, and I think it was only... I forget when the case ended, but certainly within two or three years from that point, they had new competitors like Google in the mix. Yeah. Well, um, it, it, honestly, I, 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 
thinking back and I don't remember it in detail, it's like the the kind of monopolistic practices that are now permitted, you know, the bundling of software seem almost mm-hmm. like <laughs> quaint <laughs> for what yeah. you know oh, Apple is able to do, for example. <laughs> Yes, <laughs> like Agreed. Apple, like oh, you're just not alive. We're going to take thirty percent of every I know, single compared app, to the right? iPhone. God, take thirty percent. You need approval from us. It's so dictatorial. Yeah, yeah. it's not even the the cartel. I mean, because I always just think it's like you know, government or big business or what have you. It's all just cartel sort of stuff. Yeah. You've got your team. You create these boundaries. You try to enforce your power and your rules, mm. and you negotiate that sort of a, among the other great powers or so to see yeah. you know, who comes out on top. Yeah, and actually, I forgot to mention that my wife was actually who said. I need to interview you and draw oh, wow. attention to my book because she wrote, okay, cool. and I'll link to this in the in the um, the podcast episodes because she wrote a Substack on uh, your kind of your thinking, tying it into she's a scientist, tied oh, cool. it into the scientific thinking, and you ended up retweeting her uh, back then. So yeah, that's kind of how we got to that, which is why I wanted okay, to open cool. with that. Interesting. So. Yeah, so what are your thoughts on this, um, the, the stalling on progress of the whole of, of science and whatnot? And I also yeah. want to, if you could get to, I'm going to ask you about the thoughts on the singularity also. Because mm. I have a lot of, like, some of the smartest people I know are, like, big singularity believers. And I don't know. I don't, I don't think I buy Right. Uh, you know, and, that, and what's fascinating, I think, is the, the, the mania behind artificial intelligence is only getting stronger. Yeah. Um, I mean, the... I use ChatGPT to raise some of the questions for this. Okay, wow. For the awesome. first time, I'm like, that's interesting. Get this stuff and give me some good questions for it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's cool. Uh, yeah, so I was just in San Francisco and I was taking coffee meetings face to face with people. And every single meeting, these large language model ChatGPT mm-hmm. type ideas came up. So it, it, it is hot and manic. And everyone, this one young man I talked to, he said, we're on the cusp of a scientific revolution because we're going to have these physicist chatbots making discoveries. And I was like, you know, that that's amazing. I think you're mad, but uh, but I love the energy and I love, <laughs> I love yeah, the vision. Yeah. Was um, he doing crypto a few yeah, months ago? Term, but, uh, but the general idea, if, you know, in case people don't know, is that um, exponential progress, Moore's Law, uh, you know, eventually computers are going to become so powerful that uh, we'll reach a point where they outstrip human intelligence and then they become self-augmenting, self-improving machines so that they become super intelligent. And and maybe at that point, if we're lucky, they'll understand our consciousness to the point where they can upload our minds to the hive and we'll attain immortality that way. Uh, or maybe they'll be so powerful that you know they destroy us or get rid of us, and <laughs> who knows what. Um, I. It is remarkable how far those uh, large language model, models have come. Where some of the back and forth, like the, the 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 really good ones that you see on Twitter that people post, are really impressive. Yeah. Um, but that said, I still come at, like if I use chat GPT myself, sometimes it's like I get you get a lot of bad stuff. There's a lot of trash still. Mm-hmm. And then the, the hallucination problem where that just sort of churns out made up stuff that, that that's fascinating, too. Um, so I, I, I think it has some ways to go. And I'm not quite sure the progress is going to be exponential. It may be 
it may be fast, but maybe not that fast so that it takes like 10, 15 years before these things are really powerful. But, but maybe I'm wrong in that. I, I, I don't want to pretend I'm totally right. I mean, so the, the only area that I know of that aside from gaming, yeah. um, cause gaming, they, they come up with unique, um, solutions to problems that no human has ever done before mm. you know go and chess and whatnot um but the only area that i know where they're coming up with kind of unique solutions is like protein folding like the right. its ability to be creative and i know you write a good amount about cre and think about creativity and it's mm -hmm. uh, the, the unique aspect of creativity to humans um but it doesn't seem to be able to be creative in the same sense that um, people are to come up with new innovations. It it can complete sentences in in interesting mm -hmm. ways. Um, yeah, yeah. A term I've heard tossed about is stochastic parrot. So they're able. That's to, interesting. Yeah, they're able. Stochastic is you know, a reference to the probabilistic nature of it. So, given some set of words, what's the probability of these other words following? Yeah. Um, and then parrot. But you can you can only do that on a domain of things that are already understood. Otherwise, you're just yeah. you know. I guess you could get it now that you put it that way. I guess you could get it to the point if it could actually run experiments where it was like taking a guess, running an experiment, incorporating mm -hmm. the results, and doing that iteration. But unless you could model the physics behind the experiments to do it virtually, I don't know. Huh. I <laughs> yeah, I, I think we're starting to see those tools come online. We we come across this in drug discovery now quite a bit. Yeah. There's a, a lot of horses in this race, different deep learning, machine learning efforts to uh, discover the best protein, mm -hmm. enzymes, proteins, yeah. whatever the case may be to treat some disease over another. And the search space for those those discoveries is so large that yep. you need this kind of tool to sort through them. So I think that is becoming a, a reality. It's um, like the prioritization. Right. I, 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 creativity is a mystery. I, 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 did, I did some extensive research for the book, particularly in the psychology literature. And, and, and we're not really good at understanding it, I think, in part because a lot of psychologists are stuck with lab conditions. So mm -hmm. they, they run these experiments where... Uh, you know, you get some people into a lab and then you ask them questions like one of one of the famous ones is like, how many different uses of a brick can you come up with? And then correlating that number with something else. And it's just like, OK, this is fascinating, but not really deep. Um, <laughs> whereas and then and then you have a whole body of research literature that is just the observational studies of creative people in the past. Yeah. What were their biographies? Are there any common elements among these people? Um, but when it comes down to the actual creative process and then making discoveries in science and so on, I think, you know, that there's still an element of mystery there where we, it's not quite clear, you know, why people are able to do that or how they do it. Um, there are all these like, I don't know, call it like symptoms or uh, little tricks and so on, but there's nothing, I don't think we know how to model that or, or let alone have a computer, you know, discover the next you know, whatever the successor theory is to general relativity, that seems like a, a quite a far leap from, you know, just generating random chat language. It's like they, I feel like they know, we know how to create environments that stimulate creativity, right? Like you, mm -hmm. you know, the 3M sort of thing where you put yeah, a bunch right. of subject matter experts in a room. Yeah. 
does it make them more creative themselves at the root of it or train them for it? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. Um, I think of like Saturday Night Live is a good example where mm-hmm. it seems to be this way, way station on the way to further success in movies, maybe stand up. So it's like, now, now there's a ability bias in the selection, so they, they only pick great comedians. But mm-hmm. I also think it's the case that somehow being in that hot house and having to write every week for a couple yeah. seasons, it, it really brought something to their talents. And then maybe they go off and they make some movies that become classics, something like that. So, I, yeah, I don't know what's going on there. Um, one, one aspect is this... Uh, it's this cooperation and in, in, in competitive side to it mm-hmm. where there's an, you have an arena of ambition, meaning that the, the trade, the art or the institution has a charisma to it that has a magnetic power that draws forth talent, summons forth talent to mm-hmm. participate. So it's like the NBA just captivates people's minds. Lots of people play basketball when they're younger, dreaming of becoming an NBA star. I think that's true of, of other things, maybe even comedy and writing. Um, and so you have that arena, but, and then within that, you have these individuals who are like competing against each other because they want to be part of that great tradition or that great competition. Uh, and that can bring out the best in people sometimes. What Uh, popped into my head there was like, you know, almost all like a a huge number of songs are written by like the same people in the music mm -hmm. industry. Right. It's like they, they're just prolific at being creative in yeah. ways to make hit songs, but it's like... Do you mean like the fat Swedish guys who are writing <laughs> pop songs? <laughs> I, don't know. I wish I could tell you. I should not bring these things up without being able to say <laughs> it, but I know it's like a thing. Right. <laughs> um, so, all right, let's... To your yeah, book. Yeah, creativity is a mystery. So, I don't know. Will, will yeah. AI uh, discover the successor theory to relativity? I, I hope it does. That would be incredible. Maybe we could build a warp drive and... Uh, take it for a spin. Well, actually, um, before I move on to your books, yeah. I, I wanted to get to your book next. But let me – do you think that science is stuck? I mean, I've got – I got a few – I won't go through all, mm-hmm. all of them, but uh, you've got Brett Weinstein in physics saying the evolutionary biology is in the doldrums and we need newer paradigm. A newer okay. paradigm is needed. Eric Weinstein talks about physics in the same way. Chomsky mm-hmm. talks about psychology in the same way. Like, uh, are these guys – do you think there's something to it or do you think it's their egos and that nobody's listening to them? I'm fully on board with those. We'd have to go subject by subject and it yeah. could be the rate of progress is faster or slower in, in any of them. But on, on total, I'd say I'm fully on board. Um, I, if you just think about a lot of the old paradigms are just exhausted. Yeah. And in physics in particular, I mean, we're running into all sorts of anomalies that the current theories can't explain. And we have concepts that describe these things, but um, but they don't quite mesh. And so yeah. we have stuff like dark matter or dark energy. You know, we're inventing these concepts. And we know these but, things are kind of bullshit, right? Yeah. We know it's just like a way of describing what we don't know and can't explain. Yeah. This is where the whole just is. explains the what we observe. It doesn't yeah. say why or how it works. Or, yeah. There's no mechanism of action behind it, right? Like yeah. where you have in biology, you had DNA you discovered or you mm-hmm. had, you know, nuclear forces and allowed you to make the nuclear energy and whatnot, which were, were new concepts that you could 
prove through scientific experimentation but like if say biology for example which is like what my 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 focus is on it's like mm. so many of the predictions around genetics where we were going to un- unlock this genetic code and all of a sudden you were going to know how to make somebody uh braver smarter and more humble uh because yeah. there were going to be genes for it nope no <laughs> it didn't happen <laughs> yeah i know i remember when the human genome project was underway and it was miraculous that we, we accomplished that. Yeah. Bill Clinton had a big ceremony and all that. (laughs) Yeah. We were, we were told we were on this cusp of a, of a revolution (laughs) and uh, gene therapies have not, I mean, there's been some success and then with CRISPR more recently, there's some, some advance, but it, it, it does seem like it's slow coming. Um, yeah, and I think if you look at the higher level numbers, sometimes that helps to put it in context. Like maybe the most basic brute number I can think of is life expectancy at birth, expected, you know, life expectancy. Yeah, life expectancy at birth in the U.S. at, let's yeah. say, 1900 was something around 45 years, I think. And mm-hmm. then uh, you fast forward to 1980 and it's up to like 72, 73. But wasn't, wasn't most of that number taken care of like by sanita- uh, sanitation innovations in the early 1900s? Yeah, that, that, I think, yeah, we shouldn't like underrate sanitation. 80% of that was like washing yeah, your hands when you go to the hospital and shit like that. Um, you know, I, I don't want to, and some people point to the lowering the child mortality. I think those are all important, but it is also true that like a greater proportion of our society is now older. And maybe, you know, being clean helped with that. I think smoking as a cause yep. of lung cancer, wow. you know, that yeah. kind of thing too. Uh, just the the idea of the randomized control trial is, is an invention that did not exist before the 1940s. Uh, so those, those have all led to um, improvements in our health. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then I, I don't want to discount also, there are things like, you know, heart transplants or understanding hypertension and, uh, how that causes strokes and heart attacks and all that. So, um, you know, all those, uh, it's like the golden era of American medicine was from the invention or the discovery of penicillin to yeah, that, uh, that w- about 1980. And, and just the number of, of discoveries and treatments and tools, it was just astonishing. And then, and then, yeah, things have just come slower since then. Uh, it's not to say progress has been zero. We've had uh, like stents and the fMRI machine and, uh, and even Viagra uh, we could count as <laughs> the as biggest the yeah. biggest invention <laughs> on the list for sure. um, but if you look at that raw brute number, uh, life expectancy is only maybe two three years more than it was in 1980 yeah. um, yep. so and we've gone backwards in the last five years with covid and the deaths of despair from opioids and so on. It's, so, I, I so in that sense, is okay that we're not making the same progress that we have. The rate has slowed down, and we can argue as to why. Maybe one of the reasons is that okay, well, we picked all the low hanging fruit. We finally found out cleaning our hands uh, saved us from you know diseases and so on. But but I don't know if I fully buy that. I think there are other stories we could tell. But um, but I do I do think uh, if you go this way, it's tough to measure progress. But if we find the key variables or the key dimensions, I think in, in a lot of these different areas, whether it's physics or medicine, things just aren't coming as fast as they used to. Yeah. So let's let's get into some of the whys of that one, which mm-hmm. I think your your book pa- paper belt on fire really starts yeah. to get into. And I one of the reasons your book 
hits home with me so much is mm-hmm. I mean I've I've thought education since I was in college. I was okay. I, I changed I went from a biology comp sci major and I found out I liked to party a little too much to work that hard. And I became <laughs> an MIS major, which is management yeah, yeah. information systems. And they gave me the same it was the same four, four and a half years that I was in college, same degree. Like and I, I, I did not learn anything about anything useful <laughs> doing that at all. But I got yeah. the degree. I almost graduated from honors. I, I found myself in the business world, and then I learned everything. Right? I got lucky, mm-hmm. fell into the right company, became reasonably successful doing that in uh, me- medical services, sort of uh, medical billing firm. And um, you know, but everything I learned about business, it was on the job. It was on yeah. the job training, really. So I wanted to start off by asking you, what is what is what does paper belt on fire mean? Like, what what is that all about? Because that's a really weird term. Yeah, uh, I find people either love it or hate it. No one in between. <laughs> um, yeah. So a friend of mine, we were talking in the, I think that must have been around 2013 as well, uh, and he coined this idea, the term, the paper belt, and uh, so just as the Rust Belt defines this region in the American Midwest of these hollowed out industries um, and, and a lot of the decay and decline, um, we, we were saying in conversation at that time that, you know, maybe a new wave of technology could lead to the, you know, the, at least present some headwinds to what we were calling the paper belt. And so the paper belt is any institution or industry that's based on paper. So in Washington, D.C., you have the government, which prints money, laws, visas, all on paper. Mm-hmm. People in Delaware, people incorporate on paper. In New York, you had media, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Madison Avenue advertising, paper-based. And then as the uh, arch symbol of American higher education, you have in Boston, MIT and Harvard printing diplomas yep. on paper. Now, I wrote an essay in, in 2015 where I, I said my mission is to light the paper belt on fire. Um, and, and what I meant by that was um, all these paper-based industries and, and in particular institutions, um, when you have a piece of paper that means something, you have a set of authorities who are supposed to validate that this paper is real and, moreover, that it signals something that the institution intends. So with a, with a diploma, as an example, you have a piece of paper. We trust the authorities, whether they're Harvard College or someone else, if, the, if presented with this piece of paper, they can validate that it's real, authenticate it, and validate the signal that, hey, this education means something. You know, similarly, if you look at the Federal Reserve, it prints money on paper. We trust the Fed and the Treasury Department to authenticate dollars as real. They tell us it has a certain amount of money or value, and then uh, and then people use it. But one common trend that we've seen across the last 40, 50 years is that the performance of a lot of these institutions has been in decline. They have not been living up to the stated purposes of their mission. And part of the reason is that the insiders, the people who are meant to validate these pieces of paper, you know, whatever the paper is, is that they have become less trustworthy and less reliable. Um, and I really, this really came out for me when I was, uh, getting more and more pulled into the crypto world and, and Bitcoin yeah. and the architecture behind it. So to me, the paper belts on fire is like we, these institutions are in decline. The people who run them are not trustworthy. 
And they all seem to be based on paper. So <laughs> I thought, okay, this is a provocative, provocative title. Do, do a lot of my work is centered on that diploma as an inadequate uh, signal uh, for, you know, the substance that people, that these people say is behind it isn't quite there. So a lot of my work is on that, but I think we do touch on other things. And, and so I, I, I went for the larger scope in, in, in the title. I know you talk about a lot about like the Nakamoto consensus in the book mm, and yeah. you, talk, you talk about, you know, uh, Ethereum, but I don't think I remember reading anything about like the 1971 where they, we got off the gold standard from, mm. that. you know, do you, and I, yeah. you know, a lot of the crypto world says, Hey, right. You've right. Got shitty money. <laughs> What's going, is it, do you think that that correlates? I certainly, it's, I think it's a complex feedback loop. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, a few people have pointed this out to me that why, why didn't you, when in, in all the explanations for why things slowed down in 1971 or thereabouts, why didn't you point to Nixon taking us off the gold standard? Um, and I do think it is part of it. I, what I mean by a feedback loop is, I, my assumption is that as, you know, standard, the improved standards of living, economic growth in the deepest, longest sense is all about innovation, technological progress. Um, you know, some, you know, models are, are um, differ on this, but they all agree. It's, you know, up there, like 85% of all true long-term growth is driven by scientific and technological progress. You know, the remainder is like just more people or yeah. you know, machinery. Um, so the ability uh, to ex exploit resources from congregations yeah. kind of thing, right? Like, right. Um, so, you know, understanding how that works is important. Um, and, and I think, I mean, certainly monetary policy feeds into that. Um, but I think it could also be the case that because things had stalled out, instead of trying to solve those deeper problems, the, the government just said, hey, can we pay yeah. over it with more money? And, yeah. and I think that exacerbated the issue. It certainly made That's things exactly worse. exactly how I say but it. I, yeah. But I also think it wasn't like the precipitating cause. You know, if we just if we just got on the gold standard tomorrow, I don't think suddenly next year we'd have like massive uh progress and oh no it, i mean yeah. i think it would just accelerate a collapse where we would <laughs> yeah. have to adjust to it but like... right <laughs> yeah right i mean and then yeah that kind of transition would be quite painful yeah um so so yeah i i think that would be my deeper argument in that is that it's 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 more of a, a second order consequence and then made it worse over time i think i do think like the the story i would tell is that since that time the government has done its best to hide the lack of progress and they've done it by, you know, going further and further into debt, printing more money. I think that's that's just, you know, the options on the table that seem politically palatable to most politicians. So you so you the, the paper belt is really just like the manufacturer of this element of trust that we're all supposed to mm. agree upon for a society. And it's sort of weak. And it's like this. It's sort of like a prestige engine in a way. Like, how do you create this prestige uh, that mm. people buy into? And you, I know you. I love the fact that you're a mimetic desire kind of guy. That you, yeah. you talk about that in the book. And the, the, this, and it's obviously if it's a process of creating mimetic desire. And mm. you know, we all have mimetic desire no matter what. It's just right. what do you what do you choose to focus on? So, what do you think replaces the paper? 
uh, prestige engine? Like, where, where, where do you, what, what are you proposing as a substitute for it? Oh, man. Well, a frontal assault on the universities is quite difficult. <laughs> so, They're tied into some things I've heard. Yeah, we, we can't take a bulldozer and flatten everything. That's not going to happen. So I think on the margin, it's going to take uh, – there's this comment by Steve Martin that he talked about stand-up comedy, and, and his only advice to people was, you have to be so good they can't ignore you. <laughs> and I think I think it's true of of a lot of things outside of yeah. where I think whether you're building a company or maybe you were a novelist and you're you're trying to become the next great American writer. I think you have to be so good. They can't ignore you. That, mm. OK, I, you didn't you don't have that degree from Harvard or Yale or wherever, but you've done something that's so impressive. It can't be denied. I think that on the margin, you can do that with business. So if you start a company, you don't need someone's permission. And then if you, you know, you build something substantial that can be done. I think it's going to be much harder in the sciences where we've seen this with some of the younger, like you would think with, because uh, because our fund, what we primarily do as a fund is back people who don't have college degrees. <laughs> and the common expectation is that, oh, well, you must be funding apps and just software stuff some kid with a laptop can build. But that's not true. We've met a lot of people working on very difficult hardware. Uh, one young man recently is working on a cure for type 2 diabetes that we've backed. Uh, Tony Stark. Yeah, yeah. He changed his name to Tony Stark. Wild. Well, I, I love the that guy. That stuck into my head. I was like, yeah, he's, he's hilarious Stark. and fun and just the kindest guy, but also kind of weird. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so with, with Tony, we had to figure out a way he, he, to get going, he had the hardest time convincing other investors to back him because of his lack of degree and the name thing. <laughs> so we had to be willing to put more capital at risk with him so that he could get the results. So that at that point, it was just undeniable that his therapeutic is working. So he's cured type two diabetes in mice and rats. I think a primate is next. At this point, it's like, okay, you know, the, the bigger pharma companies and backers, they just, who cares if he doesn't have a degree? The data's there, the evidence. So yeah. I think we have to get to that in more and more ways. I think that's one way to do this. So he's about to do it in a primate? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's working wow. on uh... <laughs> That's serious. I know. Pretty wild. <laughs> no he, uh, yeah, I love, I love him. He's, he, he, he got the name Tony Stark cause he was, he'd build rockets in his parents' basement and, uh, and it was splicing DNA and all that stuff. So his high school friends started calling him Tony Stark and, and he was so enamored with the, the idea of Iron Man as an ideal. The, I mean, uh, act as if, right. You know, yeah. if you're going to, if you're going <laughs> to. He went all in. And you, you, you know, in high school, if you do that, you can get away with it, right? You know, why <laughs> yeah. not? It's it's when you start doing it in your 30s, it's like, what's going on, exactly. man? That's, well, <laughs> champion and protect the weird. That's, that's our motto. So aside from Tony Stark, who are some of the more interesting fellows that you've met in just the VC world in general or, you know, 15, yeah. 17 specifically. I, I account, yeah, I recount some of these meetings in, in the book. I think the most famous is probably Vitalik Buterin. Of course. The, yeah. The creator of Ethereum. We, we interacted when I was researching the book, I was surprised. I was like, Oh wow. I didn't realize that he had written the Ethereum, original Ethereum white paper 
and we had lunch with him five days after that or thereabouts. We were, uh, he, he was coming through San Francisco and had lunch with us at our office. Um, so that was the, the first point of contact. And then just interacting with him over, over time, you know, he blew my mind with his raw intelligence. He's probably the most intelligent person I've ever met. He's I've heard there. he's unbelievable. You know, yeah. So he taught himself Mandarin. I saw him yeah. typing on his keyboard uh, with Ethereum developers in China. And I said, hey, what, how do you know Chinese or how do you know Mandarin? And he said he taught himself. And, uh, and that just, <laughs> yeah, okay. This person is not like a typical student. Um, so, so yeah. And then, and then seeing, you know, Ethereum wasn't uh, destined for success and especially in that lead up Still to isn't. the launch, uh, there was a lot of team tension and, and, you know, we, we tried our best to advise Vitalik through that stuff, but yeah. it's been wild to see him grow and, and where that's going. You know, all the best, crypto engineers I know now are pouring into Ethereum development. I have a good buddy who who started, he's now CTO of a company that's doing stuff with smart contracts mm-hmm. and property on Ethereum. Wow, okay, yeah. yeah. You know, I'm I'm a big Bitcoin guy, so Ethereum okay. right, doesn't make yeah, sense to me. Too. I'm not smart I'm enough Bitcoin, or something. I wouldn't call myself a maximalist, but yeah. I'm pretty close to, I'm, me to, too. to, to, I, to being there. <laughs> And, and I do think, you know, I, I think Ethereum's best potential is in uh, if it becomes the, the, the settlement platform for just global trade or trade across borders and all that. If, if it can handle that, um, that's quite impressive. And then, and then maybe there's some other things that can spin out of that. I don't see it as a store of value in the same way that Bitcoin is just because you can print as many. You can print it. Yeah. Yeah. There's there's a fundamental property of it. that doesn't exist. I mean, I like Vitalik and everything, but I don't, I don't trust them that much. Exactly. Um, so I just, yeah, I just go back to basics on that. I mean, for me, the, 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 the cap on the number of Bitcoin, I think is, is the, the most important thing about it. Yep. The, 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 are there any, anything else you get social engineering and, you know, Bitcoin, you can trust physics and that's all you have to be left with basically. Yeah. Yeah. Um, another young man we, we, uh, helped in 2012, he started a company called Figma. Yeah. Dylan Field. And Dylan is one of the kindest, nicest people I've ever met. I mean, he, he's a great example of uh, nice guys don't finish last. Uh, and, and sort of the anti-Steve Jobs, too, in that sense. He's just like one of the nicest, kindest, you know, sympathetic people I've ever met. So uh, he made news, or and his company did this last fall because Adobe agreed to buy Figma for $20 billion. So quite substantial acquisition. And, and um, how many people worked at that company when... It was a pretty small firm, right? When I mean, we, when it's, we, oh, now? I don't know how many people. Well, when it got acquired. Yeah, I don't know. That's a great question. Hmm. I'll have to look that up. Uh, I mean, even it, it was just two people when we backed it. <laughs> have you, so while, while you're looking that up, have you ever read it? employees. Wow. How many? <laughs> 350. Oh, yeah, yeah, twenty billion. Wow, yeah. that's pretty <laughs> not bad. Yeah, there, there's a graph going around Twitter about the number of companies. What is it? The number of employees required to make millions in revenue. Like that number has been coming down and down over the years. Oh, I mean, it could be a lot lower than it is now, too. As, I know. And look uh, at Elon's Elon proving now. House of Twitter. 
I think he's going to yeah. inspire a lot of other companies. I feel like they could make even more layoffs. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know that Google could just ax like half. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, no problem. <laughs> yeah. Totally. Sorry, Google guys, but you know it's true. <laughs> um, hey, have you ever, ever read any Curtis Yarvin? Yes. Yeah, sure. Mold bug. I know, okay. I know Curtis. I uh, know Curtis. Cool. Okay. I know Curtis. Yeah, I've okay. read him and I know him. Um, I first came across Curtis in 2008 or nine. Oh, you were early on. Yeah, the some people sent me some of his blog posts. Um, I've always found them to be way too long and verbose. Um, I <laughs> mean, he, he used all to the words, whether he's talking or writing, it's always yes. too many oh, words. Oh my god! Listen to a word. podcast with him on it. He can. I watched the number for hours. Yeah. <laughs> and then, uh, and then he'll cut and paste, you know, full books by Carlisle in a, in a post. And I'm just like, I can't get through this Curtis, please. Um, so yeah, he, he was writing posts at, I think it was called unqualified reservation yep, yep. for a long time. Then I met him in 2011 or no, 2010. Um, and he was just starting the early days of, uh, developing Urbit. And the prog programming language it's based on, uh, he actually worked with the Teal Fellow. They had a big falling out in the early days, and, and that didn't go well. But, but yeah, so I've known Curtis for some time, and and there's lots that I admire in him. What I what I admire most is actually how different I am from him. Where mm -hmm. I consider myself more of a, a libertarian individualist. And he is very, you know, he's coming from the monarchic, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. He's, he's like, so, we need to restore the monarchy, divide yeah, everything well, up into I've, fiefdoms. I've never been criticized from the monarchy. And, <laughs> uh, and so that was refreshing to, to meet someone who, who wanted to assert these you know, strange beliefs. Uh, you know, the one that stood out most to me was uh, that, that in some sense, you know, every citizen is a ward of the state. And, and we're only upset because, you know, our, our owner... And in the nation is just doing a bad job at cultivating That's, our talents. But yeah, <laughs> but if you if you leave the country, you're stealing property. He said, you, if yeah. you take your talents elsewhere, <laughs> there's a big investment in you. You're, yeah. You're, so I don't know if he still believes that today. This is like a party conversation, and I was just like, all right, Curtis, uh, you know, this is too crazy. I mean, in 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 a zeitgeist of thinking. You know, the, the Overton window is so small for so many people that that man opens it up. So yeah, it's wide. very much so. Yeah, that's true. And, and he was early on board. One thing I will agree with him on is if we had a competitive system of governance where like Europe in the old days where you had all these different kingdoms and enclaves and yep. you know, frontier city states is that if, if in some sense people were competing for citizens, then then that would discipline the monarch or the or the tyrant um, in the same way that that Apple is run by a tyrant today. Yep. We don't call them that. They're called CEOs, but they have tremendous power. And if I don't like what they make, I go somewhere else and that disciplines yep. them. Right. So I, I do think Curtis is right, is that maybe the. We, we are, as a society, like one of the strong points he makes is just his criticisms of democracy. I think people are, yeah. are blinded by democratic fundamentalism and they think that's everything. But really, maybe this like competitive nature of governance could be even more powerful than democracy. Yeah, he was definitely the first person that made me go, oh, yeah, democracy doesn't really work. We're, some, <laughs> yeah, we're yeah. clearly some sort of hybrid system right now. Yeah. Of like, 
kind of democracy, elements of fascism, like yeah. with somehow communist tendencies. I don't know how it all gets mixed together, <laughs> but it really. <laughs> I agree. And then maybe this third most powerful insight is this idea of the cathedral. So yeah, that, that's that's his the pinnacle of his thinking in my yeah, opinion. Yeah, where it, even though the New York Times and the State Department aren't the same organization, <laughs> they sure as hell act as if they are. Right. <laughs> and uh and the people who work there and so on are are power seekers and exercise that power of the regime. So uh, I think that that was important. And 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 I think it comes out with uh in in as we compare ourselves more and more with China and, and we can be t terrified by their social credit system yep. or their surveillance, but reflected on the United States, the cathedral is operating in similar ways, just in a decentralized oh, fashion <laughs> where there's no centralized credit score, but boy, you could be canceled uh, pretty quick for not living up to those civil standards. And then, um, and then, yeah, likewise, as we were saying, like, it's just they seem a lot of these institutions act in a way such that you think they're operating as one. And it's it's very hard. I mean, the obfuscation of how much is centralized versus decentralized, is, mm. that's the big mystery to me. It's like it seems like it's a centralized, you know, puppet master, but it right. doesn't at the same time, it you know, people seem to be <laughs> operating independently as well. It, yeah, and the, it, the biggest finding out of the Twitter files was confirming this. Where, yeah. <laughs> like, well, and even and even now, like with the uh, the whole COVID lab leak thing, right? Mm. You have the Department of Energy comes out with, yeah, it came from the lab, and all of a sudden the FBI comes out, yeah, it came from the lab, and you've got the New York Times, the Washington Post, you've got uh, you know the late night TV shows, the talk shows going. Well, we can't really believe this. What are we? Yeah. Are we sure they're saying it's it's a low probability? But it's yeah, you know, it's like now they're starting this little infighting between like which of these organs of this apparatus is going to like get the ball and run with it, and this be going to become like the new Overton window of like what the cathedral, as they say. Yeah, there are cracks in the edifice, um, but it is remarkable. Prior to this year, maybe prior to let's say Elon buying Twitter. Oh. How, how solid that position was um, with the lab leak. With I mean, now it's coming out that like all these people were pulling strings in the background. Oh, Fauci yeah. was writing emails. We have the we have the emails now. <laughs> yeah. we've got the direct directives to the technology <laughs> yeah. companies. Right, to saying what what narratives are okay. Well, I don't I don't care if there's no American Communist Party. Uh, they're still acting as if there is one. So even if it doesn't exist in name. It, it oh, for sure. Action, and, and that is very troubling. Were you like, the, what surprised you about the Twitter files? Because to me, I knew this stuff was sort of happening. Like, I, you could just mm. tell, but I had no idea the brazenness and the extent of it. I thought maybe a little bit. You know, right. I thought like a modicum, but it, it was no. Everybody knew who was on the inside and they were trying to open the fire hose as wide as they had time for. Yeah. yeah, I did not expect to see emails directly from government uh, authorities <laughs> to Twitter. And then I did not expect the incestuous nature of these things. So I didn't expect that like former FBI agents would be hired at Twitter and then in charge of managing something too. In so charge that, of the legal department. <laughs> yeah. So to me, those are the two biggest surprises, I think, out of that. 
I, I was blown away by it. And then you had like Yoel Roth. He, mm. he is the most interesting character on that whole thing <laughs> yes. to me. Like he gets now he's testified in front of Congress. And like, I, I don't remember the details, but it's like, I get mm. the impression that somebody's had a conversation with this guy and he's realized his only option now is to toe the party line. Like, yeah. He, now, now you know what side you're on. And I, he was running his own private bulletin board for, for a long time. And now we know. <laughs> now we know it. And he had all those weird writings, like his thesis and college. Oh, man. Like, I know. That's oh. right. That stuff. I'd forgotten about it. <laughs> um, so if, it's ha- if it happened at Twitter, we, I mean, there's no reason to believe it wasn't happening at Facebook. Of course it's Google. happening at Google. Of course yeah. it's happening. I mean, Microsoft is is the most utilized piece of software in the United States government. Right. Like, of, like, of course- what I would love to unearth and to see are the emails at Google and YouTube when um, – who? what was the name of the guy who got fired for saying men and women were different? James uh, – man, what was his name? I mean, there's was James brain Lindsay. from COVID or something. I mean, James <laughs> Lindsay is the guy who's always on that uh, – um, Man, it'll, it'll come to me. But the, a okay. few years ago, there was this guy who – I guess the, there, there was an internal discussion at Google about. Oh, like, the Google guy, James, um, James Damore. James Damore, that's it. Yeah, that there are yeah. psychological differences. So I would love to now, if we could unearth the emails going back and forth about <laughs> whether this guy should be fired. And I wonder, oh, would yeah. it be funny if, 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 sure enough, we discover there are emails coming from you know, the FBI or, or Washington. Right. Yeah. Saying, Oh, here's what we think here. That's, that's the same shit that they can Larry Summers from Harvard. Oh yeah. For. Right. Remember that? That was it's like, if, yeah, if Larry Summers can't weather that, that 2005 score, or four, yeah, that was a long time. Yeah. Ago. That was the, yeah. that was the canary. You know, that yeah, was, no, that was like, when they took out Larry Summers than it was. <laughs> I mean, I remember being blown away, like blown away by that. And like, yeah. how do you take, down the president of Harvard, who is like huge, big wig, mm-hmm. you know, even beyond that, for those kind of comments. And like, how did James Damore think he was going to survive that after that, too? He's going to read the history. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Oh, you're right. And, but you're in 2005. I mean, maybe I, it, it would be interesting to track the the origin development of these ideas in the academy, how they spread. Oh yeah, in the academy. That was probably the first sign around then. I mean, there were in the '90s. You had stuff too, but that was a high-profile case. And then by the teens, I mean, now the like so many departments and in, in colleges have just become madrasas for woke fundamentalism or you know this equity, um, diversity stuff. And and it's just oh, this, like, this is the real neo-communism. Yeah, shit. it is yeah. the kiss of death of creativity. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah, you. You know, it, it, it went from, you know, women want to be equal to men yeah. to women are equivalent to men to men are men can become women and women can become men. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm like, when did this happen? Right. <laughs> to this person is capable of bearing babies. <laughs> to, you can't just say she's a woman. If, my favorite is like... If, um, if, 
what, 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 like, no, not all, not all women have periods or something like yeah, that. Yeah. It's like, like, it is it's a like truly or- making... Orwellian world we're, we're in these days. Oh, it's um, brave. New, it's like this weird mashup between, yeah, like, brave new world in 1984. Yep. And, and what's, yeah. And so that last part is like, when did these ideas, it's in the teens and why, I don't know, but yeah. they, like suddenly did leave the academy and entered into the human resource departments at all these companies. And it and it it's within the last decade and a half. It did not like yeah. these things weren't like I remember maybe a little over a decade ago. I had an employee that shared mm. with me. You know, she was a lesbian, and we, we yeah. were good. We were friends. You know, mm-hmm. she had a wife that became her husband, and like okay, whatever. And yep. like she had shared with me the ginger, the, the gingerbread gender, you know, diagram. I don't know. Mm. Like, I'm, I'm just like, I have no fucking way. This is all new to <laughs> okay. me. You know, this is. I don't know what that is. Complete, what is the gingerbread like, diagram? I had to start thinking about things and considering things that had never, ever crossed my mind. And it seemed <laughs> yeah. completely innocuous to me at the time. Yep. Fast forward to. The, the the 2020s and it's like this i'm finding out this shit is being put into school for for kindergartners oh my and, god right yeah and it's like there's and literally there's un unesco has this kind of stuff in their planning documents on how schools should be instructed yeah yeah uh, department like, of ed in the u.s is now pushing <laughs> this stuff it completely, and, and you've got a health and human sec, uh, health uh, health and human services secretary or i, I don't think it's like mm. Levine, whatever her name, Rachel Levine. Yeah. Uh, it's like, how, how, where, did, where did this all come from? Right. And then in the 1950s and 60s, everyone knew that the academy tilted to the left. It wasn't as far to the left as it is today or as overwhelming, but certainly the bias was there. And yet at the time, it was perfectly reasonable to say, okay, those ideas are just for eggheads in the ivory tower. We don't have to worry about them ever leaking out you know people go to college and then they just live their lives they play with these ideas and then they become normal yeah but something i and and i would you know the deeper i would put my finger on the deeper issue is i think it is tied to that stagnation where um i think people start uh, like quackery and crackpot theories abound in a world of stagnation because it's it's like if we don't understand something then we're going to just start to invite invent all these convoluted theories and conspiracy ideas as to why something is the case. And, and I, I think I would put a lot of the woke platform in that category where I think it's this response to uh, things not changing in a positive way. One of them could just be the, the, the shambolic education system we have, how little it does to help people. And, you know, you could point to like, if, if the number one stat that people care about when it comes to race is disparity along some dimension, whether it's test scores or mortgage applications or whatever. Um, you know, the underlying problem to me is the, is, is the stagnation is like, we haven't figured out the problem of how to educate people. And uh, you know, that's the deeper issue to me, not the, the fact that some are scoring better than others. It's, it's that, you know, how, how are these people, you know, you put them in public schools, why, and, and they're failing. How have you, you not had a revolution to overthrow these public schools? They're just a disaster. So yeah. how are you not angrier about this? I don't get that, but, but I don't know. Maybe that's, you know, too far down the rabbit hole. But to me, the, 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 the base layer problem is always 
this, this sense that we're not making progress when the pie isn't growing and maybe even when it's shrinking, it gets worse. Mm. It's like the, the, the conflict just erupts. And instead of solving problems, we, we turn on each other. You see this in personal relationships and companies all the time. I think it's true for society as a whole. You know, one, one of the things that I, I, I forget what was in the book or somewhere else I was reading that you wrote, that you, you'd studied like the, the fall of the Roman Empire uh, yeah. to a degree. And that you, if I remember correctly, you disagree with the fact, with the idea that the United States is going through the same thing. Yeah, I mean, I'm interested in the rise and fall of civilizations. Mm -hmm. um, I think it, it is an understudied subject, but I also think it is overemphasized. Like Rome is just the the classic example that seems yeah. to put everyone's attention in. Um, because I it, it, I am interested in in what makes societies creative. I'm interested in what makes a nation creative. What makes the, the same nation less creative than it used to be, right? Yeah. Uh, those are all big questions. And then, and then I'm interested in individuals and groups as well. So it's like, I, in, in effect, I wanted the book to telescope out where, you know, starting with individuals and people we work with or to creative clusters like Silicon Valley, San Francisco, to America as a whole, I think we need to investigate these, these problems because we don't know, we certainly don't know how to create these things. They seem to just be miraculous, these creative clusters, uh, or even like a golden age for a nation. Um, the one thing we know how to do is destroy them. Um, and, and that has been, uh, you know, sad to see in, in Silicon Valley. But when it comes to Rome and, and some of the other examples, I mean, that's the first place we have to look is, okay, what happened in these situations um, where, uh, you know, what what were the ch major changes that led to the decline? And where I think I differ from most people on Rome is that I, I, I do think the pinnacle of Roman civilization was was the Republic. Mm -hmm. And then when the Republic you know, ended and, and the empire was born, uh, I, I think that was a major shift. And even though they, they maintain uh, power throughout the Mediterranean and Europe, um, much of their creativity dried up. And so it's, it is a very curious miracle that the empire lasted for as long as it did, um, you know, another 300 years or plus. Um, but but I do think its creative fires were not as strong as they were when, when they were more. So, Ro so Rome was – it was maintaining its reach and its influence outside its home sphere. But what you're suggesting is that the – the creativity, the innovation, and the things that uh, that built Rome were yeah. much lesser uh, during that time yeah, than it was I, on. Yeah, and you look at the their arts, all the great writers we study are, are you know, the, are pretty much from that period, right at the end of the Republic to into the the first, let's call it century of the Empire. All you know, from uh, Virgil to Horace, to, uh, you know, the poets, if you think of, uh, Seneca and some, and Cicero, mm -hmm. I mean, these figures are all at that turning point. Um, and then if I think of the statesmen and so on, Cato, whoever, they're, they're all from the, the previous era. Mm -hmm. Whereas after that, you do have some empire em emperors who seem to be quite competent. You know, maybe they were, they were always great civil engineers. They were great, uh, military tacticians and, uh, and empire builders, they could certainly run an empire, but, uh, but you don't see many, uh, like they they, they never made their way in the sciences. 
certainly as compared to the Greeks or even the Egyptians for that matter, where, uh, you know, the, the Romans were, were not good at, at math outside of their, their engineering. It wasn't something they made great advances in. And that could have been just a function of the Roman numeral system. Interestingly enough, it's like, it's really tough to uh, make co compute things in the Roman. It's a long um, way of writing some numbers out. Um, but yeah, if you go through math and science and, and other arts, it's like they, they, they did not flourish the way, let's say Athens had, or even, you know, a lot of the Greek city-states taken together. So I, I am, uh, you know, there's something where, I don't know what it is, especially among younger men, they just love the power of, of the Roman Empire and the majesty of it. Yeah. But I, I tend to see it as a lot like China, where, okay, it is powerful and they have made advances, but it's not a place I would want to live. And if it was the only place, okay, I would I would live there if I had no other choice. But I, I, I would rather, I, I think I would have preferred to live somewhere else, to be honest, at the time, just for these reasons. And, and, and then they just were not uh, welcoming to innovation. There are some stories, it's, it's apocryphal, but there's some story about a glassmaker who brought his new uh, strong glass to the emperor. And, and when he he presented it, the emperor said, well, is this going to put all the other glassmakers out of business? And the guy said, yeah. And, and so he had the guy killed. <laughs> so that is a pretty uh, sad story. I mean, it speaks to uh, the lack of, you know, you're not going to see people invent new things if you're discouraging them to that degree. So I, I don't know. I don't want to go too far down a Roman rabbit hole. I just, I, I do push back just because it seems to be there's this glory of Rome that people are attracted to. And, and I tend to think that the West is comprised more of Jerusalem and Athens than it is of Rome. Uh, I, I would say Jerusalem, Athens, and London. I'll take the common law over the Roman law any day. Huh. Okay. So with <laughs> yeah. the, with the, before you started with the Teal, yeah. uh, working with uh, Peter Teal and whatnot, you were like an academic, right? I forget. Yes, what... I, I, I do have a background in the classics. Uh, I, I did, even, and that came out. And what I was just saying came out in my studies, where I, I much preferred uh, the Greek to the Latin, both in the literature, philosophy, in the philosophy, and other things. Um, and and so, yeah, I, I thought I was going to be a professor of philosophy, studied right, ancient philosophy, philosophy, but also moral and political philosophy. And I. I yeah, I, I realized I didn't want to be a professor. I, I, I wanted to be a writer. And after a long time in grad school, I, I dropped out. So I didn't finish my PhD. But, um, but you know, that time was, I, I still love the subject matter. I, yeah. <laughs> not these books, but yeah, I, I, right here. I'm impressed but, with the books stacked upon books part. Oh, uh, like, man. Yeah. I know. have so many of them. <laughs> a lot of it is, uh, as this is the, uh, I, I, actually, this is, I love spy novels. They've got a lot of spy novels behind. Um, but yeah, I, I do read a lot in ancient history and uh, philosophy still to this day. It, it, it informs my way of life. And, and maybe in the same way, if, if someone was born Jewish and they study the Talmud and so on, it's like, you know, Greek philosophy and Greek poetry and Greek tragedies are <laughs> my, uh, my, my religious upbringing. Oh, no shit. Uh, do you, so, I mean, do you read Latin? Do you read Greek? I do. It's been some time. So if you gave me a sight test yeah. where I had to, without a dictionary, I'd, I'd perform poorly with the Latin. Um, I do okay with the Greek. It's been, I don't do it. I think it's like a, a muscle you got to keep in shape. Yeah. But uh, I mean, but you could, you know, with, with a little bit of computer aid, you can work through. Uh, yeah, a, a yeah, yeah. yeah. And in fact, I want to go back to it because 
I, I, it got ingrained in me. I'm, I'm a morning person. I'd always wake up and the first thing I would do is my translations. And it became a meditative hour, hour and a half for me where I would go through uh, whatever text I was studying for that day's lesson. Um, and I miss the feeling of that meditation now. So there's a part of me that, that wants to go back and, and maybe start the day with a translation in the morning. Um, I mean, I, I, I know of a number of uh, uh, philosophical kind of um, themed accounts on Twitter that I follow. Some of them I'm, gonna, mm. I'm trying to get on the podcast also. Yeah. Um, you, know, you know, have you ever thought of just like sharing some of like your, your thoughts, um, like, you know, kind of doing the bridging the gap between, you know, the, cause you're, you're clearly very versed in this stuff. Mm. Um, you know, sharing some of like the teachings that, you know, other people might not be, as familiar with that through, could the be tweets, interesting. through the tweets. This is me wanting you to do it, basically. <laughs> I guess I should. Yeah, there's a part of me that wants to go through Plato again um, and and like dig into secondary literature. Uh, I seem to be coming back to some Platonism in my views of the world. Mm -hmm. um, so that, that could be interesting. Um, yeah, there's a I guess there are a couple threads that seemed to be taking off. And, and maybe this is why I was pushing back on the Roman stuff was, you know, stoicism has, has come yeah. into vogue, especially among uh, sort of millennial startup types or, or fitness oh, gurus. The red pilled young man. Yeah. And I think, and I think there's a lot that's to be admired in, in the stoic worldview. I've written about, uh, you know, some of the differences I have with it, but, the, but when I, when I'm, when I push back on stoicism, the one thing that stands out to me is like the, the, the modern followers of the stoics don't seem to realize that there was a marketplace for philosophy in, in those times. And there were competing schools of thought that disagreed mm. with each other for different reasons. And so uh, any criticism I've leveled against the stoics, it's always just coming straight from the school of Aristotle. Or, or one of the competitors. It's not some original insight I had uh, in, in, into that debate. But I think, but I think I, I do love that. Okay, it's cool that you know people are finding wisdom in, in these things. And then, and then the other thing, you know, I don't know if you follow Bronze Age Pervert, but you know, back oh, I know I had to stop following Bronze Age Pervert, okay. but I I follow <laughs> enough people that follow him that I get right. enough of a dose of it. <laughs> Yeah. And, and I, I think he's hilarious. I think he's yeah. over the top. I think he's insane. Uh, but I think he is brilliant. And he one thing that he's brought to life is when people think of the, the Greeks, for one thing, mm -hmm. they they realize they don't seem to understand that there are all these different city states that had different ways of life. But but even within Athens, you know, Plato is this is at the at the end of the golden age and the fall of Athens, and he very much presents a different yeah. point of view to what the good life is than uh, what the Greek tragedians and poets thought and, oh. and other philosophers. And so, one and, and Nietzsche was was the primary primary uh, channeler of this distinction. Yeah. Uh, in his hatred of, of Plato and, and, and Socrates even at times. Um, and I think one thing BAP has done well is, is channel that energy some more, which is that there's more to ancient Greek philosophy than Plato um, I, or the even most, the people who came after him. It was actually incorrect. I mean, 
correct me if I'm, I'm not characterizing this right, but you know, I've never really read Nietzsche, but I listen mm. to these guys that talk about these things. And one of the, and it's the need to evaluate a philosophy from the perspective of the philosopher of at that given point in time, mm-hmm. right? And that the philosophers are essentially in their philosophical points of view, describing their own neuroses. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Or justifying them in some way. Right. Is that about, is that kind of what Nietzsche did? Uh, I think so. I mean, he, he did go crazy. So, <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, it's a mystery. Some people think he suffered from syphilis, yeah. Um, but there, there are other views. But um, he, he has a remarkable, interesting career where he too dropped out of academia. He was a professor of the classics mm-hmm. of, of Latin and Greek. They called it philology at the time, the study of of words, ancient words. Um, and, and he left and, and became this self-published writer. I mean, the guy was basically writing screeds on Amazon and self-publishing them. Um, and the things I admire about Nietzsche are his, his vitalism. You feel the energy and excitement in his writings. Mm-hmm. There's a joy to his writing, uh, an affirmation of life that I find intoxicating. Uh, but then when it comes to specific views, I just think he he goes off the rails. Like he's he's uh, at times he preaches a relativism that is that is just too much to take, um, for from my point of view. Um, but but I do admire him as as just like one of the, the 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 great poet philosophers, and I think he he did put his finger on you know another distinction that that Nietzsche not only and it, it's like I don't know it's like there are all these ideas that through the centuries have just been melded and combined together, or maybe they're so pervasive that we don't really see that we're living in them. One of them is one I pointed to earlier, which is like somehow that Plato represented all Greek thought. Well, another one is that Christianity had sort of subsumed Platonism into it by uh, the, or, you know, sometime in the like third, fourth century, Neoplatonism is pretty strong in a lot of the, the views of the, uh, the idea that, you know, our spirit, and the transcendent world is the deepest reality and, and that our bodies should be denigrated uh, or, or at least diminished in their value compared to our soul and so on. These are all platonic ideas. Mm-hmm. And Nietzsche took a hammer to them mm. and, and, and really, uh, and which is interesting because it's like, it, it, it's like one of the radical ideas in Christian philosophy is that the word was made flesh that at mm-hmm. the center of it all is this paradox that somehow theory and the concrete met in one, that, that the transcendent and reality are in one. You know, it's hard to conceive this. Whereas, you know, on one, a Plato would say, hey, no, you know, reality is worthless. In fact, it, it diminishes our being. We really need to strive for pure spirit um, or pure idea. And then Nietzsche takes it in the other direction where it's, it's just all about embodiment and the, and the soul is dead. Um, so, you know, that, that, that was one hammer blow that, that Nietzsche brought to philosophy. I think the next one and really powerful was to see that we live in a Christian world, whether or not we are devout or whether or not we believe And Mm -hmm. and to bring that distinction out. And Nietzsche does this with a comparison between the, you know, if you look at the virtues and the ethics of, of Greeks and Romans versus, you know, the world after Christ, 
you know, here's an example is like the, the, the Romans would never put up a statue to a martyr. They don't, they wouldn't put up a statue to some poor peasant killed by an incompetent soldier. Yeah. They would put up a, a statue to a God or a conqueror or someone like the, of that stature. Whereas now to use a controversial exam, example, it's like, look at George Floyd, he's killed. We see uh, murals painted of this man. He's elevated to the status of a saint. And while his death is tragic, it's like you would in Rome, you would never see a statue right. to some fallen peasant in, in the hinterlands. Well, it's, it, it's the elevate. It, it, I'm glad you're talking about this because this is to me one of the odder things that goes on in our society is the elevation of the victim. That's um, right. So, so that, that is the core Christian concept that is just so per pervasive. And Nietzsche picked up on that. And, and in his terms, he, he characterized these things as like the, the slave morality versus the noble. The math, yeah. Yeah. And I, and I, and I understand the value of it in terms mm. of somebody who sacrifices himself, you know, for the good of the community, right? You're sacrificing yourself in order so that others may live and mm. you know what what have you um but at the same time where people are aiming to take up the mantle of the victim in order to like there it just doesn't seem like attempting to be a victim is a good <laughs> thing right like yeah you know, there's an intensification of of the victim status as as almost a higher form of life we do see competition, especially because the state hands out goodies based on it. But it's like yeah. people competing to prove that they're a, a bigger victim than others in order to receive some benefit of some kind, or 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 you know just get better, more attention in the public sphere. I think that that that's an outgrowth of this. Um, but what so seems to be missing is the Christian sense of forgiveness. That that's not part of this, um, and then. <laughs> Uh, you, then, you have yeah, the that... victimhood and the vengeance going together, right? <laughs> yeah, like, right. like you, know, you know, you know, Christ was all forgiving and like, yeah. you know, and he got, he well, got. If you don't honor this victim, you should be a victim. Kind of, I don't, I don't. That next step is, is the, yeah. The next step yeah. behind this is like the the whole let's go burn down a city thing is probably <laughs> yeah. not the natural evolution of it. You've got to. Right. And I, I don't know. It's interesting. Like why? So Nietzsche famously announced in the 19th century that God was yeah. dead, right? And um, we do not have enough blood in the world to wash our hands or something to that effect. Yes, precisely. Yes. Yeah, I think that's it. And um, and so what happens after that? Um, well, in a Christian world, what happens is the star dies, but the light carries on for a number of years. And so there are all these practices and you know, ways of interacting and, and beliefs that have the, the, the vestiges of Christian morality, but, but they have nothing to base it on. And, and I feel like the, in the 19th century, we saw in Russia, for instance, the nihil, the, the nihilists movement. And if you thought God died, was dead and you were an atheist, I don't, I, it's like, I get you could transition into nihilism. I, you know, more, more probably you move to hedonism where it's some kind mm -hmm. of live for the moment. What's odd, I think, in Europe and in America is that when God dies and you retain the vestiges of Christian morality, instead you move to communism. And, mm. uh, and, and so communist Russia became this intensified version of glorifying the victim and, and yeah. you know, killing and destroying anyone who didn't agree. 
Um, but then I think woke and, and, and some of these other things could be characterized the same way in the sense of that, again, it's the focus on some kind of victim, but it has this like tenacious punishing quality to it, um, which stands in contrast to, I think, Chinese communism. So they don't have the legacy of Christianity. And so maybe this could be why Chinese communism is different from Soviet communism or, or other examples, because they're not grappling with the legacy of Christian morality. They're just, you know, it's more Confucian and collectivist to begin with. So maybe in that sense, it could be more fascist in orientation. Uh, but, but it does seem to be a different animal than, than the Soviets. Hmm. We've gone down a rabbit hole. (laughs) This is way off script, but I I love it. (laughs) Uh, Okay. So let me, I've got, you know, I try to resolve these ideas in my mind. Like all of this stuff that you're talking about, it's like, it, it fascinates me. And like the, one of the ways I've tried to resolve this idea of you know like how like you you want to be like christ you want to be sacrificing for your community and whatnot Mm. right and so you end up with you know so what like what does a person consist of it's it's, and i and i've started to think of it as like two kind of fundamental elements you have your genes your genetic code and your memes like your mimetic code right and 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 you know if you've ever heard the expression um people don't have ideas ideas have people yeah Uh, i I think about it that way where like the memes and the genes they use us as vehicles to spread themselves Hmm. and the the genes and the memes have different fitness properties in different environments right you know and and that we've through the industrial age we have alleviated the environmental pressures that would otherwise eliminate lots of different versions of genes and memes specifically Mm -hmm. memes because the ideas have gotten out of hand and ideas that you would have otherwise gotten you killed through (laughs) hundreds and thousands of years are now allowed to survive and flourish and get on And I feel like like that we are living through some sort of manifestation of that where we've mm-hmm. taken this uh, this meme of the elevation of the victim and we've extrapolated it to all these different victims to raise them up and put them on a pedestal. And yeah. like it's going to keep happening up until the point where like there's some sort of pressure to get rid of those ideas. Mm. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh I've heard the term luxury beliefs to describe some of this. That would be another way of putting it, I think. Yeah, that that you you can fill your mind with so many falsehoods, but they don't meet the test of hitting the pavement or making contact with reality. So they're yes. not directly refuted or you could get by, you know, living on these falsehoods. I think that, yeah, there's some truth to that, huh? That we've become so wealthy and successful that now our own success is turning on us where people are choosing to live in in their own fantasy world in and there's nothing and there's no environmental pressures to stop them right like yeah right you know your your parents will just send you off to college where you're going to get incubated with these ideas (laughs) (laughs) and maybe this is why the rich kids come up with the worst ones and they spread the fastest (laughs) yeah I i i mean there is something to that but i don't know I don't know what the answer is. Um, 
it's such a it's such I a big. I think the answer is food shortages, but. <laughs> Well, I mean, that could be the answer. Could be that in, in this in this story of of growth, flourishing, peak, degeneration, decline, and fall. Uh, you know, maybe a common element of of that turning point, that that one second past the peak of the parabola, is is this existence of luxury beliefs, where that you know maybe your own success destroys you because you you can you can harbor these false ideas. For, for a generation or two, and then you hit rock bottom. Well, I, I forget the name of that cycle. There's, there's this uh, internet meme that's oh, actually- strong men, weak men. Yes, right, strong times, men good create times. good times, good times create weak men, weak men create yeah, yeah. bad times, bad times create good men. I, I, I don't know the full cycle, but that's- That's, that's, that's it, the viewers yeah. all know it, they got it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, yeah, I think there must be some surprising like it, it's stupid, but it's true and profound. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, I, yeah. it makes sense to me, you know. Uh, another okay, another so version gonna... of this is: Have you heard of shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves in three generations? Oh yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I know, yeah. I know that concept. Right. right? So you it's know? like the first generation, the founding entrepreneur, patriarch, <laughs> matriarch, whoever, but they build the business, and then maybe their kids want to take on the business and they learn the trade. It's never as good as the founder. Yeah, but, but they phone it in, you know, yeah. they're not really going for and it. And then by the next generation, though, you've got the trust fund babies studying Marxists. They want to be you, poets. You, you got you got Hunter Biden taking <laughs> yeah. over. <It's... laughs> um, yeah. So maybe, maybe we just have to go through these cycles and hopefully they don't all happen at the same time. <laughs> yeah. Give a, it's like, oh, what's, what's that other saying? It's like, if you don't study history, you're doomed to repeat it. And you, and if you do, you're doomed to watch everybody else repeat it. <laughs> the one weird twist of that, I don't know. It's always, it's always assumed that it's bad if history repeats. But there are lots of things I wish we would repeat. <laughs> there were some golden eras. Uh, what, what, I, what do you think we should be repeating there, Michael? Um, well, I mean, just in the sense of. I like when I when I look around at a lot of these institutions and, and a lot of the constraints. I, I feel like you know when I I think about, let's say America from the end of the Civil War to World War One, just a tremendously creative and energetic place. Um, in my mind, there there were there was a lot right about the law and the government at that time. I mean, there were bad things certainly, like Jim Crow and Reconstruction, mm -hmm. but like by and large, uh, you know, America just shot forward as the leading to the leading edge of technology and science in that time you had those independent invest inventors like edison tesla and and so on so i i think yeah wouldn't it be it's like if we could somehow uh well, that, that was the age of great men in many ways for yeah America. right uh so if we could bring back the underlying laws and conditions to some of that A frontier I mean, to what? explore expand into yeah right <laughs> <laughs> or or even just like i mean take a golden era it could be like elizabethan london drama mm. it's like oh my god what a what a flourishing moment or or philosophy in athens and in, in the 420s 410s and uh or you drama then i mean I, I don't know there were these flourishings and uh great moments in in the history of literature art philosophy i don't i would love to recreate whatever produced those but i don't think we know how to do that you don't think that's happening on Instagram and TikTok? <laughs> <laughs>
It could be. Someone put, made this controversial tweet, I think, where they, they, they were saying people like BAP and Curtis and, you know, there was this guy from the late 2000s in the Manosphere named Royce. He was vicious. This guy was a pickup artist. And he just write the he, – he, he could, like, put down anyone with the greatest comedy. I, I, it was laugh out loud funny. And, and the, the tweet I saw was claiming like these people in a hundred years are going to be looked back on as like the great philosophers <laughs> of the 2010s and 2020s. So I don't know, maybe, maybe that could be, the, could be true. Hey, I said Instagram and TikTok. I did not include Twitter in that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Actually, as I understand it, there's a controversy in the world of poetry right now, because you have these, you have these people on Instagram who, are becoming famous poets. They just write like, you know, four or five line poems. They put them in, in beautiful places and they get millions of followers and then they'll publish a book of their poetry and, and they might even sell a hundred thousand copies. It's so outrageous. how is this, how is this controversial? Well, because the established, oh, you know, the, the establishment, yeah, the MFA to New York city line of, of poets. Uh, you know, just can't handle that these people are this successful, and so they denigrate it by calling. You know, this isn't poetry. This is <laughs> those are the same so people that elevated somebody, an artist who shit in a can, right? <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and so if we th talk about uh, you know declining institutions, I think art is in decline. Um, mainly because we can't trust the insiders. We well, can't... except for money laundering, Hunter Biden <laughs> yes. has really knocked that I mean, one out of the park. It's getting—it's a Ponzi scheme getting the insiders rich, but <laughs> you know, they're telling us these things are masterpieces. I, I think we should scratch our heads and say, "Really?" I don't. You know, <laughs> yeah, that. I mean, the art world, like when they started to get away with, like, it doesn't have to be beautiful or good, nice to look at. Like, I'm like, really. That's, you know. <laughs> yeah, architecture, art. The 20th century was just an awful period um, in in these domains. Music. I mean, I love rock, jazz, blues. I think, and that that was quite quite wonderful. But the decline of, let's say, the the classical music, that's <laughs> pretty sad. Oh. similar to sculpture <laughs> or architecture. Uh, you know, we could or or painting. Like all these arts turned in on themselves and, and became games that that no one you know really cared about. They lost. When, when, when you have when you have like uh, music artists that were literal prostitutes that would drug and steal from their victims as like their origin story. Oh, this is like Nicki Minaj, I think. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I couldn't be getting this wrong. It's like, yeah, I think something's gone wrong. And like they're 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 on TV, like on MTV or we're doing reward shows. It's like right. you don't know, maybe we've lost the we've we've gone <laughs> off track a little bit. Yeah. So let me I wanna I wanna bring this back to my script a little. Okay, yeah. Let's get back to um, chat GPT's I... questions. We we've, <laughs> we've been unpredictable. We I was joking about like the uh, yeah, we're we're gonna sort out these incorrect ideas with a little famine, but I had a plan for that comment to where to go with it. Oh, okay, let's go with it. You know, because you know well. Yeah, the the food shortages in Ukraine and the mm -hmm. use of manufactured uh, crises in order to gain power from centralized entities. And you've written a bit about your fear of totalitarian one world government. Mm -hmm. And 
I thought I would ask you to what, what how do you think that is going like do you, do you think that that's like a formalized plan is it sort of a decentralized Ooh. thing um like where are we in this process what are your thoughts wow that's great and in light of what we said earlier about the cathedral maybe I should revise my understanding of of this gravitation towards one world government it because uh, on the surface I would say it tends to be driven more by the dominant philosophy of our time and that background Christian assumption that everything is universal. Um, you in, you in that, also wrote a bit, and this really yeah. intrigued me, where you talked about like the warnings in the Bible, uh, the coming yeah. of the Antichrist, and right. the one world government in particular as a danger. I know. I thought that was a fascinating uh, trail to, to follow a little bit. So in the context of the book, I, more broadly, I just wanted to portray a little bit what it was like to work for Peter Thiel. A lot of people know him as a public figure, whether through his politics or through technology, but there haven't been really any great inside accounts of what it's like to work with him. So I felt, you know, it'd be fun to portray that a little bit. And so I, I used a number of conversations I had with Peter as, as, as a way to do it. Um, and, and I end because I, as, as a bookend is one of the last conversations I had with him where, you know, we're discussing what you just said, where Peter had been thinking a lot about the Antichrist as a concept and, um, you know, how it's discussed in the Bible. Uh, you know, we talked about, you know, references in literature and so on. And one of the interesting things is, is that the Antichrist is, uh, you know, often portrayed as like the, the, the catchphrase of the Antichrist is always security and peace or safety and peace, you know, and, and, and the idea is, isn't so much like this battle between good and evil, you know, Satan and, and God or Satan and Christ. The Antichrist is as Christ-like as the, as the Satan or the opposition could possibly be without being uh, good. So it's, it's, it's always the, the Antichrist always operates with the cloak of goodness. And it seemed to me that a lot of the fundamental conflicts of our time are not black and white battles between good and evil. Instead, it tends to be this much more subtle battle between you know the good and that which appears good and isn't, and, and mm -hmm. very much in line with the Antichrist uh, concept. And so I, I talk about a conversation I had with Peter on this. Uh, towards the ends of the, the, the meta book. patterns that the Bible gets at are so <laughs> real. Yeah, that, that is a profoundly wise book of psychology, in addition to being, you know, a sacred scripture. Um, so I think yeah. I think there is something to that. And I'm not, you know, I, I mentioned before, I'm more of a it's like it, in my conversations with P Peter, I don't write about this, but he, he, uh, he does refer to me as a pagan. He's like, well, Michael, a pagan like you would see things this way, <laughs> whereas you know, people don't really know that Peter's Christian. So I don't know the Bible. Well, I don't, I'm not like a scholar of the Bible, um, but it is interesting that that like that concept exists um, in in the in the belief system. Um, and, and to me, the, the idea of one world government that seems to be driving along these lines where a lot of the reasons to form one world government are often done in the name of peace and security. Top of the list could be, okay, the end of war, but it's also other things like, how do we prevent uh, nuclear 
exchange or nuclear terrorism yeah. or maybe bioterrorism? What, how, how are we going to prevent, uh, how are we going to keep everyone safe in a world where, um, you know, COVID could be invented in anyone's basement? Um, and often the response today is, well, we need one world government to regulate these things. And perhaps, you know, paramount nowadays where you see this the most is in is uh, the use of climate change as a level oh, yeah. of, of gaining power in this respect that we can't possibly let each country decide how they're going to manage their economies. We need one world government to set the, the standards and regulations for all industry and, and, and so on. So in that sense, it, it, it very much does feel like uh, the Antichrist at work where, um, you know, in the name of peace and security, we could be walking into a very dangerous situation. You know, government, totalitarian governments killed over 100 million people in the 20th century. I think they could possibly kill more in the next. Um, and, and if one world government was formed, perhaps it would start as a very benevolent uh, government, maybe democratic representative government, but if it did flip to totalitarian, then there's no escape valve to, to leave from. And, and, and then we're in one, we're, we're in deep trouble. So I do think we, when we think about the existential risks of the world, I think we do have to weigh in the balance. Like, well, if the solution you have on hand is one world government that could be stepping towards an even greater threat to humanity. Yeah, I, and I think you you need to maintain to bring this idea back to mimetic variation. Hmm. You you need to be able to maintain different cultural versions of good ideas to incubate incubate and sort of come up with different variations. Like hmm. when you start getting into this like monoculture thing, where particularly where the monoculture is like everything is acceptable. Yeah, uh, you 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 end up with some very weird bad shit, right? Mm. Like you, <laughs> um, and and that's that's what I end up being most concerned up from the idea for yeah. right? Yeah. So to return to the question of what makes nations creative, um, they do follow this this biological metaphor that we've been using about okay, there's a birth, there's a growth, there's a peak, there's some kind of decline and death. Um, well, there's no reason to think one world state wouldn't be susceptible to that same set of forces, whatever they are. I mean, it could be, you know, some underlying cultural piece, like we said with the, the meme about good men, uh, you know, tough men, strong men, weak yeah. men. It could be, I get into the book a little bit about the political economy of, you know, insiders erecting barriers to entry. I think those accumulate over time, but whatever the, 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 the factors are that lead to the death of, of cities and nations and civilizations, I don't think we have a good answer yet of how to turn that around. So if you if your if your idea is to create one world government, we also create the danger of of, of uh, bringing the world into stagnation because mm -hmm. we do need islands like the Galapagos yeah. where things can develop on their own without being influenced by what's happening on the other island, and and that gets into the rich cultural stuff too where. You know the, the the music and the food and, and the poetry is really tied to a specific people and place yeah. and and you know the criticisms of globalization I think are quite strong when they're on that cultural angle too. It's like we should you know this homogenizing low level culture of 
you know, whether it's McDonald's food or bland TV, we really need some independence among nations if, if they're going to have any independent character and therefore any independent art that, that, that has a different flavor to it. I think one of the the, the terrorists from 9-11, I, I, the thing that set him off was he started seeing like, I don't know if it was a McDonald's or another mm. Western store or something like that, pop up in, in Saudi Arabia. Right. And, like, well, that, yeah. and it was that sort of cultural invasion. They were, it was like that, mm. that he was like, this is bad. This is what I have to strike back against. Okay. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. I seem to remember a book. What was it? Jihad, Mickworld. I can't remember. Jihad versus Mickworld. Maybe that was touching. <laughs> that, might be, that sounds uh, thematically similar for yeah. sure. Yeah. How globalism and tribalism are reshaping the world. Interesting. That could be worth reading. I don't know that one. Maybe, maybe there's uh, you know some Prussian stuff in there from 1995. Um, yeah, that's interesting, right? Is I think it's important to see. Uh, in order to see ourselves in the mirror, I think sometimes we need these outsiders to to see what they're criticizing. Um, you know, a couple other examples might be uh, Ted Kaczynski. I think you know. Punishment. But on the other hand, you know, some of his insights into what's wrong with modern life are trenchant. He's, he was scary right about some yeah, things. About a, right. I think his <laughs> solutions are terrible. His, yeah, his, maybe his, his resolution mechanism was a little <laughs> off, but God, yeah. God, he had a good diagnosis on some stuff. Right. Um, very prescient. And then maybe, you know, even the, even the, God, I, I have a book I haven't started, but I'm interested in is like, it's about uh, some of the Native Americans who were brought back to Europe in, in the early days of exploration. And, and like the reasons why they did or did not like Europe, I think will be fascinating to, to dive into where it's like, what, or even in, in the United States, sometimes, you know, Native Americans would be brought to New York or, or, or Washington in, in, even though they had warm water and food, they'd always miss their home and mm -hmm. want to go back to where they came from. And I think that speaks to something in human nature where, okay, what is it about what makes life good that, that we might be missing in the West that we're blind to? And I think these outsiders can provide a good, at a minimum, a criticism, but also maybe insight into how we can change. I mean, one is, you know, being outdoors and like sunlight and fresh water yeah, and open right. plains. I mean, I, I eminently believe that just the visual act, like having vision of nature is very good for people's mental health and like mm. people in, uh, I think, yeah, there's, I think, I think people there's... in New, New York go crazy. Uh, right. Of, I couldn't cite like, the papers, but I think more and more it's, there's a body of research that's growing that's. Yeah, some, I mean, you could also just talk to New Yorkers. It's it's <laughs> those those corporate donkeys in their cubicles just it's mining it's like, away. But you but you can tell like people who haven't you know they they're they're around sensory overload all the time. Like mm. they, their minds don't you know. And some of the you know if you're a corporate guy, you got some money, you get away, you can find your relaxation. But you know, yeah, if you're, if you're just in the hustle bustle and grind and like don't have those sort of freedoms, I think yeah, I think it's pretty rough for people. You know? Yeah, that's so that's fascinating. And I, yeah, maybe more and more people are becoming aware of this kind of stuff. I know. Uh, 
like I forget Huberman, this guy, he's like yeah. telling everyone, start your day by walking 15 minutes with photons hitting your eyes. <laughs> it's like, okay, I think he's onto something there. I I've think he's it. onto something. Yeah. I don't do it. <laughs> but Not I, down with the cold showers yet. But yeah, yeah. With cold bath, ice bath. You know, maybe over time. So yeah. are you st so when did you become a little, I'm going to use the word, obsessed with the CIA? Oh, yeah. So that's my personal story where and, the, and I, I talk about this in the book. So I I, I grew up. Um, well, maybe maybe by way of further background. So to, to tie it back to this question of what makes individuals creative, uh, one of the things I learned from Teal was uh, the work of Rene Girard, the mimetic yeah. stuff. And, and in Girard's monographs on the scapegoat and elsewhere he he was obsessed with with the madness of crowds and witch hunts mm. and in particular of interest to peter was gerard's explanation for why the crowd picks a specific scapegoat yeah. in the type of person that's chosen as a scapegoat and what gerard says is is the scapegoat is often a figure who 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 has a polarity or or, or paradox about them they tend to be insiders and outsiders uh, and and so if you uh, look throughout mythologies and so on. It's never the case that like a complete foreigner to the society is chosen as the scapegoat. That can't be the case because this person is in no way responsible for the social crisis at hand. On the other hand, there's the insider who's like the king's right arm or whatever. That's, this person is just too close. It's always this ba a boundary figure somewhere in between those who who fits in as the scapegoat and is chosen. And and Gerard says. Uh, something along the lines of that they're chosen for their extreme characteristics. And so the scapegoat in mythology often becomes either a hero or a martyr. Um, and, and that was, you know, Peter picked up on this and, and actually used it as a rule of thumb when thinking about who to hire and who to back as a startup founder, where he, he loved, he loves uh, backing people who fit this insider outsider polarity, this dynamic. So, you know, with that little principle in hand, I certainly, we've thought about that when we think about the characteristics we look for in people. But in writing the book, I decided I had to turn the mirror on myself and provide a little bit of a, a self-portrait about how I've also been an insider and outsider. So in, in my personal life, I, I you know, grew up thinking one person was my dad. And then mm -hmm. when I was 20, discovered someone else was. Um, and so this was a... a you know, personal revelation, but it also meant I was an insider and outsider in my own family that I grew up thinking people were my full siblings turned out that they weren't. So it's like in one hand, I'm part of the family. On the other hand, I'm not, I'm, I'm different. My, my um, step, my stepbrother went through that. Uh, oh, really? Actually. Okay. Yeah, yeah. 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 I was, I was actually told about this last couple of weeks that he, I didn't oh know God. that he wow. actually thought that my dad was his dad. But, Interesting. Um, yeah. 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 Um, wow. That was oh, a yeah, recent I mean, revelation to me that uh, that was the case. Yeah, and that can lead, you know, that could be dramatic or maybe traumatic to use therapeutic language. Um, I don't, I didn't Generally. have trouble. Tr I didn't have a troublesome childhood or anything like that. But but it did. It was you know kind of defined who I was, and and so I set off to learn more about my dad, hmm. my biological father, in. Uh, my mom, you know, not only did I not know who my dad was, but, you know, this person my mom claims was killed, um, you know, three days before he died. He told me he was an engineer for NBC. He worked uh, 
you know, their cameras and communications, um, you know, which is pretty wild. But, uh, but three days before he died, he suddenly tells my mom that, you know, he, he says he's doing work for the intelligence community, that his life is in danger. And this takes my mom by great surprise. And, um, and then three days later, he was found dead in his apartment. So I've always, you know, thought it was a crazy story. But, at, you know, when I got older, I decided I had to learn more. And, and so I, I, I do weave a little of, of that into the book because because I wanted to – it's more in the sense of – That's why you wanted to see the files. Yeah, right. So that's what motivates me and maybe what makes me different. Um, and, and so in the process of trying to understand who my dad was, I got obsessed with the history of, of intelligence and espionage. And, and, and spy novels and stuff. When I was younger, I applied for a job at the CIA. I interviewed with them and um, and then that failed. And then, you know, later on in life, I've just, you know, learned more and more and talked to different people. So um, yeah, it, it's a little bit of a personal obsession of mine just because of my I've, personal- I've had a similar obsession, not for the same reason. Oh, really? So what's yours? Yeah, just because of, I mean, because I find the- the idea of wielding power in that way interesting. Mm. You know, I just I've just always found that sort of cloak and dagger um, uh, kind of stuff fascinating. Yeah, um, you know, I've uh, and- it makes a great storytelling. There's so many different themes because it's such a it's a wilderness of mirrors. You never know, you don't know who to trust. Yeah. The good guys are lying. The bad guys might not be. <laughs> well, and, it, and I think the lines between good and bad blur themselves at that mm. level. It becomes this weird confluence of personal and professional in, interests and right. the boundaries. Yeah, the, the best spy novels I find are the ones in which the protagonist has two, at least two sets of opponents. Mm-hmm. There are the traditional bad guys who could be, let's say, the KGB or someone like that. But yeah. then the other bad guys are actually their own institution. And right. especially if it's misguided and bureaucratic or something like, I think this was something John le Carre mastered where, you know, Smiley and some of his protagonists, they're always contending. Like they have to deal with the opposition from the idiots in their own office, but then they also have to, you know, deal with the, the, the villains on the other side as well. I'm not interested in, you know, if it's just like white hat versus black hat, that's, that, that tends to be less interesting and less true to life, I think. Um, oh, yeah. And, yeah. And I think, you know, I I used to think that the military and the intelligence services, like, like you know, they were just kind of bad guys, right? Yeah. Like, and they weren't really necessary. and We could all just get along and, you know, that whole <laughs> naive day. Of, 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 and, and the... The point that I've got into with that is that they are a necessary function um, mm. and that there are, um, you know, and, and the elements within them are not monolithic, right? They right. are, there's, it's a confluence of factors and, in, uh, and interests that are mm-hmm. kind of like you say, uh, uh, competing for the main character's uh, <laughs> uh, blessing or, or scorn, but yeah. it's, it's not that simple of a thing. Right. And I think, I think libertarians are, uh, they're so I'm, I, and I, I'm talking for myself here. It's like, I'm so paranoid about, um, government power. Yeah. You know, very afraid of, of what it can do, but, but we shouldn't discount what the power of other, other governments can do. <laughs> uh, exactly. Like so, you think the but, Chinese wouldn't do some shit to us? Yeah. Like given the opportunity so, or, or what have you? Yeah. I think, 
the, you know, in the CIA, I think they even define intelligence on their own website. Um, it's often characterized as, uh, you know, obtaining information on the plans and intentions of, of adversaries, something like that. But maybe, maybe the fundamental question of intelligence is really who is a friend and who is a foe. Mm -hmm. and, and that is important, I think. And, and I don't know, you know, maybe all else falls out from that is like, how do we do, how do we know if someone is a friend of ours or, or an enemy? And if, if we can make that distinction with accuracy, I think that's important. And you know, the, I, I try to play with it in sort of a, a, a softest sort of way where you have the, mm -hmm. uh, the intelligence is the ability to predict and the best way to predict is to be able to control. Yeah. And, that's good. and that is when I came up with that, when I was like that to me kind of solidified to my mind, why the intelligence community operates in the way that they do and the importance mm -hmm. of it to operate in that way. Yeah. Right. Um, you know, you, you, you want to know who's friend or foe, but more importantly, you want to be mm -hmm. able to know what they're going to do. And in yeah. order to know what, in order to know what they're going to do, you need to be, have an understanding of the level of control that you can uh, have over them. And this to me is why you see so many of these former intelligence agents working for Twitter, working for Google, yes, working yeah, in the media, totally. because these are the levels of control that you, that, that are mm. needed to sort of steer the ship as they might say. Yeah. Maybe it's like the ring in uh, Lord of the Rings. It's the kind of thing that once you touch you, you're, you're doomed to corruption. <laughs> um, it's tough to wield for, for good at all. And so therefore it should be banished um, because the state of the FBI right now and the CIA are quite lamentable and, um, and quite destructive. Um, so it's, I don't know. It's really hard for me to empathize with them with how they're wielding some of this power. Yeah. It, it's very difficult for me to say that the FBI should be, Doing mm -hmm. all this COVID information suppression. Oh, I know, right? It's like on the but if we take a bulldozer and flatten the two agencies, it's like how and and we were to start from scratch. I wouldn't know how to how do we no put idea how you put Humpty Dumpty back together. Yeah, right. Like it, 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 it feels like an unsolvable problem in that way. Like you just can't fire these people. Like, <laughs> yeah. Like, I know because we could just make ourselves really vulnerable to the Chinese or I mean, and who knows what backup plans they have. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's a frightening world. That's like, a frightening world. So I, um, I, I have no idea. Uh, you know, this is this is actually a little a tidbit I wrote about. It's like uh, all all warfare is based upon deception. Politics is warfare by other means, and we live in the information <laughs> age. You know, it's. Uh, <laughs> that's, how true is that? Wow, that's great. Yeah, I mean, do you have any thoughts on that kind of idea in the modern political landscape? I love the book by Martin Gurry called "The Revolt of the Public." I don't know mm. if you've come across this. No, he, it doesn't to, ring a bell. To keep the continuity of the conversation going, he is actually a former CIA analyst uh, who specialized in studying media in foreign countries and, and the influence. And so his book. The main theory is that in the prior to the internet, the main institutions of power, whether it was the news or the government, they had the ability to control the flow of information. 
maybe not always the quality, but that could be part of it, but certainly they controlled the flow of information. So if something happened, you went to the briefing room, you received the answer, and this was disseminated to the, to the United States um, by Wal Walter Cronkite or whoever. But after the internet, this just splintered and fragmented to the extent where now the authorities have no control over information. And because there's so much of it, yeah. it, is shed, it is shining a light on their incompetence and their, or just let's call it like the, the, the performance of these institutions. So it's like, you know, you could think of so many different examples. I mean, the COVID, uh, our experience with COVID is full of this, where, you know, experts are saying one thing, but the internet is providing <laughs> reputation. In real time, that. like, we're yeah. like, this is bullshit. Um, <laughs> And it's so, only the people that have the mimetic desire to believe, like they're so locked <laughs> into believing those sources, believe them. Right. So I don't, you know, I don't know how to bring back outside of just like strict competence, like do your job and do it well. I think our, the elites have lost quite a bit of their authority because of the internet alone. Yeah. It's not even the message. It's the medium that, that destroyed it. Um, so I think we are in this new world where, um, I think people are, are, are yearning for sources of authority, you know, institutions they can trust, whether it's like some specific person they follow on Twitter or, or an organization. Um, but what is true and can't be denied is like we're in a world that is no longer the same, that, that you know, you can't just listen to some, even the president is lying to you. <laughs> like, yeah. It's just accepted that, the, you know, this is... It's like, I don't mind being lied to so much. I wish they would just be better at it in some ways. <laughs> yeah. It's like, it feels insulting that they're so bad at it. <laughs> like, make me work harder for this. <laughs> okay, so do you know anything about Palin? Like, Teal got involved in this this world, too, with mm. Palantir, right? Like. Yeah, Palantir was formed on the trading floor of Peter's Hedge Fund and, you know, a number of the alumni and then plus the current CEO came on. Um, I, I was not there at that time. Okay. And I, I know some people affiliated with, with the company, but I, I've never had an inside view to it. So I, I can't speak to, you know, what they do. Um, and, and a lot of it is quite, quite secret. Um, so I, I don't know, you know, Peter is full of contradictions. I think this is another one of them yeah. where yeah, I, I think he justifies it in his mind as as there's this ratchet effect to take away liberties and using emergencies and danger to do it. Mm -hmm. And so post 9-11, we have you know, fewer rights and liberties than we had before. And I think he, he thought or, you know, maybe the early Palantir people thought that, well, if we prevent another 9-11, then, you know, in, in effect, we're we're saving liberty. Yeah. Um, but in practice, uh, you know, I don't, I, I'm not quite sure, but, but I do think, you know, from the perspective of, we do have to like Russia, China, there are adversaries in the world. And I think we, we can't undersell the importance of national security. That doesn't mean I support the warfare state. I think it, I like, we could go on for another hour about how awful, procurement is and how corrupt the military is, but th that I can agree to that. And then also believe that we need some kind of national security or national defense. Yeah. I mean, if I were Peter at the minimum, I'd be in, you know, the guy is one of the wealthiest guys in the United mm. States. I don't know where exactly he ranks, but he's certainly very influential, has a lot mm. of money and having a seat at the table 
is mm. a good thing for him in terms of influence. And yeah, that's uh, another part uh, of it too. Yeah. Was, uh, well, better us than, you know, someone else who's right. Exactly. It's like, mm. look, you, you know, I don't, I don't, I think in all likelihood, the people who are executing those jobs are serious people who take their role mm. um, and are uh, uh, in a serious way and are trying to do the right thing. And if yeah. Peter thinks that he can influence them in a positive direction, that's, not corrupt and exploitative, yeah. right? That he might be giving better advice than others. That would I be. Think that, I think there is some of that behind it too. Um, in in, but you know, we'll see what happens, and, and I hope you know they're doing a good job. Yeah. So, oh man, where do we go from here? This has just gotten completely off track. Are you married? <laughs> you have kids? I am not married. Uh, okay. I was married once. I okay. married for two years and got divorced. Um, you know, complicated story, but uh, no, I do not have kids. I, I want to have kids. I'm getting older. I got to. Yeah. I gotta you, you, do you have kids? Do you? I'm 45 now. Yeah, I'm 44. I just had a. I have a seven month old right now. Oh my god! Wow. So yeah, I, I'm a little late to the game, but yeah. you know. Um. <laughs> <laughs> I just read a wonderful novel uh, called The Children of Men by yeah. P.D. James, and uh, if, if if anyone is interested in this idea that, you know, maybe we're not having enough children and what a world looks like without children. I recommend James's novel because I'm going to have to pick a, that up. Uh, that's I've yeah, it's just that. a rich depiction of how life would change, um, especially when taken to the extreme that, okay, what if, what if the last generation to live has been born? Um, the, the, the premise of the novel is that men have become infertile and, and no new babies have been born in wow. 20 years. Um, so that, that world, her depiction of that world is, is wonderful, uh, cultural commentary and, and a good you know, reflection of our own world. Um, I saw the movie afterward. I'd seen the movie a long time ago, Clive Owen. Um, I can't remember the director's name, but he did movies like, uh, gravity. Um, in the movie, I, it took plot elements in a different direction that I thought changed a lot of these themes that were in the novel that I quite liked. Um, you know, so I, I, I don't recommend the movie, but, but the book is fantastic. Uh, okay. but, but having read that, you know, this kind of stuff is getting on my mind where I've been working my ass off for a long time. And at some point I do want to have kids and <laughs> have a healthy romantic. I recommend it, man. It's awesome. Yeah. Like there's no better thing than like watching her try to climb up on a oh, chair. Man and fall over it's, yeah right it's cool it's cool you know and i you know i don't i grew up for the longest time not mm. thinking that i wanted kids and you know i i you know, okay i i bought into the whole thing that, that there's too many people you right. know starting the environment and then I, I i don't know exactly what did it but it was something along the lines of the thinking that i have now where you know you these, the genes and the memes, the ideas, like, have to complement each other, right? And, mm. and, good, and good ideas, like, lead to more people in your family. And we're sort of mm. genetically uh, we're, we're genetically biased to enjoying life with that sort of, like, family, the, the fabric of intergenerational family. Yes. And modern life now has uh, really in my life has kind of, you know, um, I would I ripped it apart. Isn't the right word, but it's like my mm. family scattered all over the country. Right. right. Like, 
you know, it's uh, we didn't prioritize in many ways spending a lot of time with each other. These ideas weren't taught. And um, I don't know. Have you had that kind of experience at all? Does that resonate with you? Oh, well, one thing that comes out in, in James's novel um, is just how much of the meaning we derive from our activities is is it's it's derived from the assumption that there will be future generations yeah. and future people. I mean, most strictly speaking, you would see this in like, you know, trying to discover a cure for cancer. And if we knew that everyone was going to die in this year because an asteroid hit um, and humanity would come to an end, suddenly the interest in pursuing research and you know, curing cancer becomes less important. Right. And that's a really dramatic way to state it. Sure. But I think it would also be true of other things like, you know, why write novels? Why uh, study history? Why, uh, you know, there are so many things that we do that depend on the existence of future people and they, and they ground the meaning of these activities such that I think we, we don't understand, we don't really, we take it for granted that they'll be there. Um, so from a society wide perspective, um, it's almost like our, our, I don't think meaning would totally drain from our lives, but, mm -hmm. but I think a, a good chunk would. Because if there weren't future people to pass these things on to, we, we wouldn't even undertake the activity at all. Um, and then when I think about my own family, yeah, I, uh, I just wonder, I, I, I want to share in those joys that you're describing, that, like those meaningful moments. Um, but there's also just the continuity of, of wanting to pass down the things I've learned or, you know, the ways of life in my family that, you know, the way my mom makes her turkey and she learned from her mom and that kind of stuff where, so that's something like, you know, that's important to me more as I get older. Yeah. The, the, I think a good way of describing the joy of it, it's like, you know, when you, you look, you have those epiphanies of life and you learn new things and mm. stuff and it's like, Oh, that's cool. Right. Yeah. It's like you just get to, live through your children doing that. Yeah, you get to noticed, do it again, right? right. <laughs> it's like, oh, the site it's a little different, obviously, but the cycle's mm -hmm. sort of the same, right? Yeah. And, uh, yeah, no, it's, it's no, uh, that's so a beautiful thing. And I, I, I think I'll get there. I've been working hard on, on uh, the 1517 stuff. Um, and, and I just, I, I've had a few re relationships and it's just been hard. Like my You're a good-looking, successful guy, man. Get out there. <laughs> I need to get out. I'm in Colorado. It should be renamed Manorado because the, the, <laughs> the, the ratio here is pretty skewed, especially – I mean, Telluride, a ski town. It's like all dudes. There are no single women here. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I do have to get out and, and meet more people. And, th and then the other – you know, the other thing about it was like I've, I've dated people who were – uh, my last girlfriend was a ER doc and she, mm. man, she loved her profession and she worked hard at it. But I tell you what, it's hard when two people, uh, it's hard to be in a, a you know, long-term relationship that, that can last if, if both of you are working so damn hard. <laughs> yeah, man. I know they, yeah. My, my wife is a PhD biologist and, um, mm. you know, it's, it's, <laughs> you know, she she does a lot better than me these days, so <laughs> yeah. <It's tough. laughs> but 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 I'll get there. I, mean, I get to be a little bit more selfish as a dude. That uh, that yeah, I'll still be able to have kids. Fingers crossed in three five years, let's say. Whereas you know, women face different choices. Yeah. Oh, yes, sir. Yeah. <laughs>
Uh, <laughs> what what else do you do when you're when you're not studying, investing, and uh, trying mm-hmm. to solve the world problems? Do you have any other hobbies? <laughs> now now uh, this so, is me relationship so I, coaching you. Okay. <laughs> yes, I, I I am in the mountains for a reason. I love hiking. So cool. Of, I love. Uh, Connecting with nature that way, a, you know, really tough hike that leads to a beautiful spot is, is something I love to do in the summertime. Um, I've, I've been snowboarding a lot this winter, which has been great. Um, and then, you know, I let's see, there are things I miss that I don't have here in this town. Like I, I miss, I miss being having great conversations with friends in in a city you know the, the conversations you like hear about in cafes and stuff like mm-hmm. i long for the, the the craziness of san francisco or, or or talking to just like even artists and you know people in the film industry in la when i lived there it was always fun talking to them you need to start but a I, podcast I just, yeah i know i need I should that's, where that. I, that's where i get it these days right, exactly i should do that i don't know how about you me oh gosh hmm. I, I enjoy, I mean, I'm spending a lot of my time doing the podcasting thing these yeah. days. I, my well, Twitter good, addiction is, is through the roof. Uh-oh, and, that's um, dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> I'm no health expert, but that could be dangerous. Um, jiu-jitsu. I've been spending a lot of time doing jiu-jitsu oh, okay. in my free time. Oh, um, yeah. You know, I try to do that like four or five days a week if I'm, if I can get out of the house and do that. But uh, yeah. that's, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm a white belt. And I've been doing it for about two years, okay. and what, what's uh, that, is that? Is that the beginner level? <laughs> That's the beginner level, yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah. But you know, I, I'm like six one and two thirty, so I, I have that like advantage. <laughs> yeah, um, but, but I, I think yeah, I, I want to stay in shape. I've been trying to do more. I, hiking is great, but I think yeah. I need to get on the bike more and probably have a better diet as well. But um, yeah, I mean, I. I don't know how COVID hit you, but I, we were just locked inside and like, yeah, yeah. it was like no sports climbing gym. Like my wife got me into uh rock climbing, which is great, Okay, but we stopped being able to do that. And we were like eating and yeah. drinking too much. So it was like right after COVID left, I'm like, I gotta, God. I gotta start doing something else. And That's when I knew COVID know. policy was bad shit was I lived in Venice beach and they <laughs> brought the bulldozers and pushed all the sand into the skate park and, I used to work out at the Muscle Beach, and they closed all that. I was like, "This is where we should be." <laughs> that 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 was the most maddening thing. It's like you guys are worried about the people outside. This is <laughs> yeah. like you're, you're taking out the outside recreation. Like, yeah, but oh but God. we can go. But we can go to Walmart. <laughs> what in the world? Horrific is going existence. On? You can leave your house to go to Walmart or Target, and here's a drug by, from Pfizer. And- <laughs> It's, like, it's the first step to putting you in the pods. Totally, man. The VR. <laughs> Michael, this has been a lot of fun. So glad you came on the furrowed brow. Hopefully, maybe you'll come back again and chat chat with me. Oh, and yeah. Uh, yeah, it's been a pleasure, my man. Appreciate okay. you. Yeah, thanks so much for having me on. Awesome. All right. Take care, my friend. Okay.